Good morning. Like uh, Chuck alluded to at the beginning of the service here, anybody else got some serious, a serious case of cabin fever of late? Yes, yes, me too. This past Friday, uh, you know, that, that first time in decades when it was above freezing. Uh, this past Friday, I woke up and I looked out the window and I kind of thought to myself, what is that big yellow thing in the sky? It's good to be back in church today. It's good to be back in worship as the people of God gathered today. Let's go ahead and begin our time together in Hebrews here with some prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to welcome you to our world. We've just come off a season where we acknowledged that you came in flesh to be with us and among us, to live life perfectly so that you can make up for our sins, Lord. We grant to you today everything due because of that which you've done for us, because of the per- person and work of Jesus Christ, we're gathered here today to give you the honor that only you are due. And so we pray that through your Holy Spirit and our time together, our study together, would be fruitful toward the end of living life with a passion that is sold out to you alone and not to other things that distract us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you haven't yet, please go ahead and pass out those sermon outlines in the aisles there. We'll be going through those. And I'll tell you the uh, fill-ins when we get there. Last time we met, uh, years ago, we started our 16-week journey through Hebrews together. We talked about Jesus as the personification of God's revelation. If you want to impress your friends with your theological knowledge, you can throw that phrase out there. We're studying Jesus as the personification of divine revelation. Uh, Jesus is the climax of divine communication and and the one, capital O, that the Old Testament prophets and scriptures pointed to that was promised to provide the clearest communication of God to us. He was promised to provide the clearest communication of God to us by what he did and by who he was. By who he was as his person and what he did, his work. And so that's what we talked about last week, uh, two weeks ago, that we study Hebrew because, and these are the first few blanks there, because it highlights the superior person and work of Jesus Christ, such that we are prompted to draw near to him with confidence. This is why we study Hebrews, because the superior person and work of Christ enables us to draw near to him with confidence. We'll unpack that for weeks here and see what it means. That's why for us the big idea of this whole series is that Jesus is superior so that you and I can follow him with passion. That's the next blank there is passion. Jesus is superior so we can follow him with passion, with all-out abandon, knowing that the faith that we place in Jesus is in good hands. We can confidently approach the throne. That's a main theme for us in Hebrews in our time together. So that's why we're going to have a memory verse from Hebrews 4. 
Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. If uh, some of you may remember a couple series ago, uh, during our Are You Growing series, we memorized Colossians 2, 6, and 7. I'm sure you all remember it. Um, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is going to be our memory verse. Uh, some of you, you know, think I didn't do memory verses since I was a kid in VBS or in Jet Cadets. Was anybody else here in Jet Cadets with the whirly bird and the... You didn't have those hats? I see a couple. Yes. All right. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, do you remember the beanies, right? Yes. Yeah, me too, sadly, sadly. <clears throat> We're going to memorize together these verses here, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And we've broken them up on your outlines there, just a little phrase at a time. It's manageable that way for us over the course of the 15 weeks that we have left. So in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, let's go ahead and read that whole thing together, and then we'll just talk about our little, little slice of that. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a great set of a few verses that is to give us the confidence and boldness for life this side of heaven, despite what comes our way. Let's read together our passage for today. It's out of Hebrews, the first chapter, verses 5 through 14. We'll go ahead and read that here and, uh, and get into uh, the study together. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10. And of the Son still, he says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We'll unpack that in a little bit here, so keep your thumbs there. Well, unless... <clears throat> Unless you're not exactly human or something is wrong with you physiologically, then like me, you probably love to eat. Everybody likes to eat. Let's just go ahead and say it. We like talking about eating. 
We like to talk about the kinds of foods we like. We like to talk about the kind of restaurants we like to go to. We like to talk about certain dishes mom used to make. We even like to fantasize about the kinds of shapes into which we will cut our filet mignon the next time we go to Outback Steakhouse. Or maybe that's just me. I love to talk about, think about, and eat food. I, I, I give thanks to God that he gave us something that fuels us that tastes good. Have you ever analyzed what kind of eater you are? Now you're getting into a whole level of analysis that's weird like me. When you start to analyze what kind of an eater you are and, and take stock of those things and kind of do your own non-scientific study over time, like most guys, I'm a pretty easy-to-please, boring meat and potatoes kind of eater. Put some dead animal on a grill and cook it, and I'm happy. Amen? <laughs> Throw a slab of meat on a grill, and I'm good. About the most exotic that I get is my mom's bourbon sweet potatoes. Many of you have, have heard me talk about my mom's bourbon sweet potatoes. It's the closest to drunk I've ever gotten. The Holy Spirit is in my mom's sweet potatoes. And I think the special ingredient for her is, is prayer because they're that good. Can you tell I'm trying to lose weight, by the way? <laughs> I am. 12 pounds so far. In fact, on week four, on the prayer card, I'm the member trying to lose weight. Yes, I really am. I figure my own willpower is not good enough, so, so maybe the prayers of the people, the body of Christ, could help me out a little bit. So why all this talk of food? It's not just because I'm dieting, and it's not because of that, of course. Here's why. When it comes to eating, if you're anything like me, it's all about the main dish. Side dishes for me have always sort of felt like a kind of a waste of time. They're almost in the way. Give me the filet mignon, hold the veggies, just give me the main thing. This isn't just a hungry guy who's trying to lose weight, standing up here, you know, trying to justify a slab of beef on the grill. It's also good cooking practice. Here's what the dictionary says about side dishes. A side dish is a dish served as subsidiary or less important than the main one. Good cooks know this. Good cooks know that side dishes are put on the plate to make the main dish look good. Side dishes are on the plate to complement the main dish. So when it comes to becoming a Christian, friends, it's all about the main dish of Jesus Christ. Angels are side dishes. Angels are a side dish made to, mean, to mean, make the main dish look good. So when we approach a passage like Hebrews that's full of angels, and we think, I can't wait. Scott's going to tell us all these things about angels that I've wondered my whole life. Do we have guardian angels? Do they last forever? What do angels do? Do they look like big superhero comic book warriors who protect me? Sorry to disappoint, but we're not going to study side dishes. The problem is, 
In the history of God's people and in our lives, angels and other distractions can become a main dish. Angels are interesting. (laughs) They're special messengers. But we're not going to focus on them. Focusing a lot on something like angels would be like throwing in Mother the Mary of Jesus as an object of worship. She's certainly a God-appointed messenger of his revelation. She certainly played a very important role that no one else in all of human history will ever play. But she is not the main dish, and neither are angels. It goes even deeper, friends. The problem is this. We can be distracted in our lives by pretty much anything, and it doesn't have to be something fancy like an angel. It can be anything. And in the Christian community, in the body of Christ... Those things, angels or otherwise, that distract us from focused on Christ have the potential to do real damage to the more important goal of our Christian growth. Listen to Colossians, the second chapter. Look this up if you've got a second here. Colossians, the second chapter, 16 to 19. We'll put it up on the screen here. This is a great verse that describes how we get distracted by side dishes. It says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind, and 19, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Side dishes can distract us from being joined to the head of Jesus Christ by not holding fast to the main dish. May we never become the kind of church that gives our hearts to shadows instead of substance. As far as I am concerned, let everybody else worry about side dishes. In Hebrews, in Hebrews, it comes to us saying, if you are struggling with shadows and side dishes or your relationship with God isn't what it once was or what it could be, then we learn here in Hebrews that a cure for a dreary spiritual life that is not enjoying intimate relationship with God is not having the right answers, It's not focusing on distractions. It's not striving harder, trying more. The cure for humdum Christian living is greater focus and attention on the Son who is superior to angels. If you're struggling with sin or focusing on side dishes, the cure isn't trying harder to will yourself to holiness. Hebrews says, the cure is sold out passionate abandon in following Jesus Christ. Which is why in Hebrews here, in verse 5, open up there if you could please, in verse 5, the writer of Hebrews begins quoting seven different Old Testament verses. Seven verses to show that Christ is superior to angels. 
the preacher here in Hebrews is really trying to make his case. It's, he's trying to make an open and shut case. He's pleading for clarity about the direction of our faith in Christ by quoting verse after verse after verse. That was a, a kind of a common practice for Jewish teachers of the day. To quote verse after verse after verse. We call it a chain quotation. It's called a chain quotation. Uh, it's also called other things, but that's what we're using here. Rabbis who were teaching would cite verse after verse that had a common word or a phrase in those verses. They would have that common word or phrase, and they would quote them one after another to establish the truth of their argument that they're making. And so the rhetorical effect of the hearers was that they would hear so much evidence that by the time the teacher got through, everybody would be going, yes, that's right, amen. You couldn't, you couldn't argue with item after item after item. That was the idea. Now, if you look closely at the chains or the, or the catchwords that are linked together there, Look at verse 5 there. There's the repetition of the phrase, I and my son, in both of those verses. Those are the chain words there, if you're looking in verse 5, the first half, where it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then that next part there in that verse 5, it says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Lots of translations say, say my son there. That first section shows us about the unique relationship of the son to the father. The unique relationship of the son to the father. There in that first verse. Now moving on to verses 6 and 7, if you're looking in your Bibles there. It says, and again, when he, that's God, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Obviously, the catchword, the chain word that's in common there is angels, which is how we know that this section in verses 6 and 7, and this is the next blank there, that section talks about the inferior position of the angels. The preacher is highlighting the inferior position of the angels there. And then in your verse, uh, verses 10 to, to 12 there, uh, I'm sorry, from 8, uh, eight uh, there it says, the common word is you from 8 through uh, 12 there. If you look at it, it says this, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The common word here is you or your, if you're looking down there. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Six times the word you or your is used there. He keeps going there in 10 through 12. You, Lord, this is talking about Jesus, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This part is talking about how the Christ is eternal. Talking about how Jesus is eternal. He's eternal in his reign and his relationship to the world, to the cosmos. 
Look back at verse 5 for a second. If you'll remember from a couple weeks ago when we started, those first four verses are talking about the contrast in the way that the Old Testament people of God heard God's revelation. The Old Testament prophets would come and they would speak God's truth to the people. And they would write it down and they had the Old Testament as their scriptures. But the end of those verses there in verse 4, it starts to talk about Jesus as being superior not just to the prophets, but to what we're talking about today. He's superior to the angels. And so in verse 5, when the preacher gets to that point and he's talking about Christ's superiority, he's, he's almost sarcastic. Look at verse 5. It's a rhetorical sort of sarcastic way of asking it. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He, any, any takers? Which one? Which, which angel did he say that to? Or, I suppose, I suppose those angels that you're so excited about, I suppose they call him Father. Does an angel, verse 6, carry the title of firstborn as the one with full rights and inheritance to everything in the world? To the full rights of inheritance from God the Father. The passage begins to wrap up here at the end by showing in that last section that first rhetorical, sarcastic kind of question comes at the end again. And he asks it by saying here in, in uh, verse 14, Are they not all just ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Jesus is pointed out here in Hebrews as the eternal Son of God who creates worlds with a word. The one who is forever worshipped. The one who sits at the right hand of God the Father himself and will someday use his enemies as a footstool. Which means that you and I do not have the option of relegating or demoting him to anything other than the Lord of our lives. We sometimes think that we are sophisticated modern people 2,000 years afterwards who would never fall prey to something as silly sounding as worship of angels. But a whole bunch, a whole bunch of Christians, including many of us, have majored in shadows and side dishes, leaving behind the substance of Christ, focusing on distractions instead of the main event. Some of us focus too much, for example, on knowledge and reason and our capability to know things intelligently, quoting chapter and verse as if that's important. Friends, Satan knows Scripture better than any human in history. Some of us 
focus on relationships and, and friendships as if, as if another human being, sinful though they may be, can cure the ills of the human heart. Some of us easily focus on the building. Oh, it's a pretty building. It's an important tool, and it may be pretty, but it ain't everything, and it isn't the main event. Some of us focus on the pastor or on, or on worship, as if your spiritual fitness depends on whether my sermon's good enough or the songs were something that you enjoyed and liked when you were here. That's a side dish. Sadly, many of us have hardly any focus at all. Many of us go through the motions on Sunday, tell a dirty joke on Monday, watch something we shouldn't on TV on Tuesday, and lie to our boss on Wednesday. Feeling good for a moment. Our friends may think it's funny. It may even help our career. But a life focusing on things like that will not stand the test of time when things get rough. And they will. That's what it's like to be a Christian without focus. People do it every day. Our, pill, our, our pews are filled with people who lack the focus on the main dish. Few of us, of course, do it intentionally. But we do it nonetheless. Unaware of the danger in lacking focus on Jesus Christ. If you want, if we wanted, if we wanted our lives to spin out of control, all we have to do is become a Christian and then do nothing. The message of Hebrews is this. Friends, if your once vibrant faith that used to be captivated by the basics of the gospel message of Jesus come to bring grace and love, if that kind of once vibrant faith has been replaced by concerns of my preferences or my favorite or my concerns, you should beware. You may be atrophying spiritually, because of a diet of side dishes instead of the main course. If the gospel by itself, the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ as superior has become boring to you, and in need of some sort of new mystery and drama, the problem is not that you focus too much on angels or other distractions. The problem is not that that focus is too strong, but that your focus on Jesus Christ may be too weak. Let's pray. Lord, we're gathered today to celebrate you and the amazing work of bringing salvation to us in the person 
and the work of Jesus Christ. As a church, we ask that you would enable us with power through your Holy Spirit to live as if Christ is superior to all else. May we practice as a people, and may we practice the difference between loving a building and using it. Loving knowledge of Scripture and using it for Christ. May we practice the difference between great friendships and loving our friendship with Christ. May we, as a body, practice the difference between leaning on a preacher or a church too much and the difference between that and leaning in the direction of Jesus Christ alone. We ask, Lord, that you would remove from us the wandering ways, the distractions, the things that are like angels in our lives, so that we would focus on who you are and what you've done. And it would define us forever. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a moment here. But when we sing these words, may they be sung from a place in our hearts that acknowledges along with others here, along with the millions of people gathered all over the world, sung from a place that understands that preeminent, that most superior to anything else that concerns us is the work in the person of Jesus Christ.